This is an ABC podcast. This is The Book Show. Hello, I'm Claire Nichols speaking to you from Wajuk Noongar land. Today is a good day because Alexis Wright is my guest. I am so pleased to have Alexis Wright here. She is one of Australia's most important living writers. She's won two of the country's most significant writing prizes for two vastly different books, the Miles Franklin Award for her 2006 novel Carpenteria and the Stella Prize in 2018 for her non-fiction collective memoir, Tracker. Now Alexis has another truly original creation to share with us. It's a novel. It's called Praiseworthy. And it's an epic Aboriginal fable about a fictional town, a haze cloud, land rights, global warming and donkeys. Once upon a fine time for some people in the world, but not so plenteous nor perfect for others, there lived a culture dreamer obsessing about the era. He was no great dreamer, no greater than the rest of the juggernauts in his heartbroken storm people's humanity. They knew just as much as he did about surviving on a daily basis and about how to make sacrifices of themselves in all the cataclysmic times generated by the mangy dogs who had stolen their traditional land. Hi, Alexis. Uh, Hello, Claire. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I want to talk a bit about the evolution of your writing style, if we Mm. can, Alexis, because I really feel like this book is the culmination of that. Um, Can we go back to the beginning in your first novel, Planes of Promise? Do you remember back then why you wanted to write fiction? Perhaps. (laughs) I I remember. I knew I, I wanted to do some writing uh, at at some stage, and uh, I'd spent most of my life working in in um, uh, the Aboriginal world, in organisations, in communities, and um, some government departments, and uh, I had uh, roles where it re- required a lot of research and um, uh, looking at Indigenous rights throughout the world, uh, land rights, and um, constitutional reform and, and, and so on. And I, 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 you know, have an inquiring mind, I guess, and, uh, and that's grown over the years and, and uh, through uh, uh, research, higher education um, and, and literature. Uh, I love literature. I, I, I read uh, novels um, from uh, writers from across the world and, uh, uh, and I, I was trying to find a way of... Um, uh, writing and uh, Pauline's Promise was my first attempt, and uh, it um, it grew grew from there because it um, I wanted to do you know so much more in 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 in, in literature try to um, challenge myself um, to find a, a, a better way of, of writing uh, fiction in a um, way that uh, suited. A country like this with the oldest living culture in the world. Mm. It seems like this has been your your mission for so much of your writing career is finding a way to tell stories in an Aboriginal voice, an authentic Aboriginal voice. Um, 
What are the limitations of the form? I mean, the the novel and the, the Western form of the novel when it comes to trying to discover that voice. I couldn't find it uh, at the time when I when I was trying to understand how I, I might write um, the, in in a whirl, you know, a huge whirl here that we have, uh, and a whirl of all times, you know, uh, you know, culture, you know, uh, uh, the oldest living culture in the world, uh, stories that are ancient, um, beliefs, uh, laws that are so ancient that are still existing here today, and um, and the, and the big stories of colonization, and that you know, that's still huge issues for us, and. Um, Issues of sovereignty, um, and uh, and I, I had to look at writers, you know, who who um, had that long unbroken uh, attachment to the to their own country, and that's how I um, developed um, the the style of writing that I, w- I wanted to do here. I learned from people like Carlos uh, Fientes, uh, uh, the Mexican writer, you know, and when he said. Um, you know, all times in Mexico are, are important, and no time has ever been resolved. And uh, and I thought that is exactly what's hap- you know, what what's the, the situation is here, and I wanted to try and find a way to do that. And so it's been a, a journey of uh, uh, writing that in, in in that way, or you know, bringing in all times and all times are important, no times resolved. Um, and, and 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 in a storytelling world, you know, we come from a, a a very long storytelling world, and so I wanted to capture all that in in in, in anything that I, I did, and uh, so it's 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 a it's a long journey, and um, and and I enjoy being on it. Mm. I I think that's so fascinating. All times are important. No time is resolved. Mm. I do get that sense of all time, no time in your writing, uh, particularly in this book, uh, because there is storytelling on so many levels. There's the cosmic and the domestic all happening at once. I wonder when searching for this authentic Aboriginal voice in fiction, Alexis, what that has meant for the more Western standards, I guess, of linear plot in your work. Well, I'm not. I'm. I'm not too sure. <laughs> I. 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 I enjoy what I do, and uh, and I try to build a story uh, that uh, that that works for in my mind. I, I'll work at it and work at it, and uh, and to build the story, uh, that build the world that I'm writing about and the people in it, until I I I I, I feel that it it works, and uh, and hopefully, you know, my publisher thinks it works and uh, and we go from there. I, I've been reading a lot of your interviews, Alexis, and, you know, you were talking about, I think, famously with Carpenteria, that it was hard to find a publisher who would embrace the storytelling technique. Uh, what, what was that? People wanting more kind of mainstream storytelling? Well, yes. Um, uh, I, I, I think the, the publishing world um, is... Um, uh, a bit stuck, you know. It's it's um, it needs to become more exciting, and uh, and uh, get, get with the story, <laughs> get get with what's happening in the world, <laughs> and uh, uh, and um, and be more ambitious and be more visionary and and uh, uh, and support writers to 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 
go on that 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 those those journeys, you know, into into new ways of of writing and and uh, exploring, expressing what's happening, and uh, and 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 bring the readership with uh, you know with them. Do you think that reading culture is there in Australia now? It's there, but we can build on it. You know, we can build on it far more. You know, uh, uh, um, and do greater things than 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 we are. And uh, and I and I'll challenge all publishers to you know get with the story and um, build it and build it big and build it mighty. I love that. Uh, so let's get into the story of this book. Uh, it's called Praiseworthy. Uh, this novel, I think it's fair to say it's a deeply political novel, Alexis. Uh, it's about Aboriginal rights. It's about global warming. It's about the Aboriginal story. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you remember the initial spark of the idea for this book? Uh, yes and no. I'd finished the, uh, the Swan book and I was thinking about, you know, the, a, a new novel and I also started the tracker pro- doing tracker at the same time, and tr- tracker took six years to to write, and uh, but I was also doing research for the, for this new book at at the same time and starting and the writing process, and um, I, I have a lot of notebooks. <laughs> I, I write bits and pieces of you know things that uh, I want in, in to put in a new work, and. Uh, I don't go back on the notebooks all that much, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but it, it, it um, yeah, I don't know where the idea of donkeys came from, for instance, and um, I just love the idea of writing about donkeys in 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 this work, and uh, as much as I enjoyed writing about butterflies and moths and and um, uh, golden beetles and. Uh, and and the and and the natural world and uh, and the world of uh, of ancestors and culture and all that just just enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I wondered how much of this came explicitly from the Northern Territory intervention. Uh, in this story, we, we're in a small community in the north of Australia. Mm. Uh, the government is very involved in this community and it is really shaping the mindset, particularly of the children in this town. Was was that an e- explicit um, inspiration for this book? Not the main in- inspiration. Uh, it's... Uh, but it it was happening at the same time, uh, well, it, a bit earlier. So um, it it began it began uh, on the day that um, Carpenteria won the Miles Franklin. Wow! Um, Howard made made that decision to introduce the, the intervention into the Northern Territory, emergency intervention, he called it. But um, uh, look, I, I, I you know. I, I, I'm 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 of a world, you know, the indigenous world that where we know what's going on, we see it and we hear it and we feel it um, every day, you know, of our lives, and so we're we're finally attuned to you know all the things that happen to us. So yes, the intervention was a big part of what was happening at the time of um, uh, writing this book, and. Uh, um, Unprecedented uh, climate change um, disasters, and um, you know global viruses, you know pandemic, uh, war, and a whole lot of things. So they're they're all things that are you know that we're attuned to, that we know what's happening. So of course you know that those things um, in your in your in your in your mind and in your psyche and uh, 
you understand you know, what, what, what's happening and uh, you, you can't just, you can't ignore it. So yes, um, boy, uh, a character in, in the novel, um, you know, I was, I was, I was concerned about um, children being born into the, you know, the, the screaming of Australia about, you know, Aboriginal people not loving their children, um, like, you know, not loving their children like white people love their children. And um, so I was wondering about how this would have an effect on, you know, small children, Aboriginal children who heard all these things. Oh, our parents don't love us. You know, our communities are not safe. And so I explored what a young child, you know, born into that world, um, hearing all these things, how, you know, would that affect that child? Mm, and I found that uh, very moving. Uh, this place, Praiseworthy, you've created is covered in a haze. Um, it, it could be a curse. It could be an ancestral spirit. Can you describe this haze, Alexis Wright? It's just a haze that it's it's like a dome, you know. It, it it's it sits on top of Praiseworthy, this little place called Praiseworthy, and uh, it won't go away. And uh, it's like a it could be an an ancestral being or, or you know a creation being, maybe creating something else. And um, it just sits there and it won't go away. And it's it's like a curse. And um, uh, the the community, you know, the people in the community, they want the haze to go away and it won't go away. They want the Australian government of, you know, of Aboriginal people who put themselves in that, you know, in that, uh, um, you know, it's the boss of Aboriginal people. They want this Aboriginal, you know, this Australian government for Aboriginal people to come and take the haze away, you know, but they don't. They totally ignore the, the people in, the, in, in that community, you know, which is um, not a lie. <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, it's something that happens all the time. Yeah, so into this you bring a character. Uh, he's sometimes known as Cause Man Steel. He's sometimes known as Planet. He's sometimes known as Widespread. Who is this man? He's a visionary. He is uh, obsessed about you know, global warming and what's going to happen in the future. And um, and uh, he uh, wants. Yeah, he's, he's, he has a dream that uh, uh, the way to you know, the save his, his mob, his his community, his culture is to, uh, uh, you know, he, he comes with a, you know, a, a dream and a plan so his people can, you know, ride the burning planet, you know, that's coming and uh, and and uh, survive, you know, to um, uh, tell the tale on the other side so that they'll survive because they're going to plan for this and, um, uh, and his plan is, you know, with... Uh, um, these amazing donkeys that we have here in Australia. Okay, talk more about these donkeys. Uh, five, we got five, five. We got five million um, feral donkeys that are nobody wants apparently, and 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 he says, well, they're free, and he's going to build a, a you know a, a global uh, um, conglomerate uh, with his with these donkeys, but he's he's in search of the the perfect donkey, that the one he saw in his dream, that has to be the spearhead of this major transport system. And um, mm. so uh, he's, um, he's on a mission and uh, it's his odyssey and uh, to um, build this thing. To build a donkey conglomerate. <laughs> um, yes, yes. Th- this character, um, Causeman Steel, he's an appealing character, but he can also be kind of frustrating in his 
tunnel vision about his plan. Um, I was wondering how much of Tracker Tillmouth had found its way into this character. You were talking about Tracker earlier. He was the subject of your Stella Prize winning collective memoir. Is there mm. some connection between these two men? Uh, look, not 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 really. I mean, subconsciously, there might be something there, but um, the, the the character for this book is is nowhere near like like what Tracker was. You know, Tracker was uh, uh, you know a, a ph- phenomenon in his own self. He was bigger in life in every way, and uh, we still talk about him, and you know, we still remember him. We still laugh at things that he made us laugh. You know, him you know would make us laugh about, but. There's a lot of um, people like uh, like Cosman Steel or Widespread or Planet, you know, in our in our world, we, we've got a lot of people who who um, um, have great plans and uh, ideas and and vision and uh, and gosh, it's hard to make make something work in our world. It really, really is because uh, you don't get a lot of support out there and to to make it better. And uh, you know, it's, you know, when you've got governments to flat out, try, you know, with their own visions for you, and uh, uh, and you're fighting those things, you know, all the time. But uh, you know, we've got lots and lots of people who who uh, spend most of their lives working on 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 something that they they want want to happen, and um, and they believe in it. They really believe in it. And just just get get ignored. So um, there, there's plenty plenty of uh, you know um, inspiration for a character like Cosman Steele. Okay, and this guy Cosman Steele has two children. We've spoken a little bit about the youngest. Uh, his name is Tommy Hawk. The older brother is called Aboriginal Sovereignty. Can we talk a little bit about why these characters have the names they do? Aboriginal Sovereignty was. Um, it, Cause Ben Steele called his oldest son, um, named him um, Aboriginal Sovereignty, and uh, well, partly because you know the, the, the two words that he 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 liked to say all the time was Aboriginal Sovereignty, and uh, so he called his 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 son Aboriginal Sovereignty. So nobody would ever forget, you know, what what it's all about, and um, and and also um, the idea, you know, you know, I try to. You know, tap into the pulse of the country and pulse of what's going on in our world, and um, and it's that's that's a big issue for us. You know, what's happening to our Aboriginal sovereignty, and um, so the characters partly, you know, a a a story about Aboriginal sovereignty. Yeah, it, it means you can write lines like, "Have you seen Aboriginal sovereignty anywhere?" You know, is Aboriginal yes. sovereignty alive? Questions like that, which obviously have a pretty clear double meaning. That's right. How how important is it for you to get this down, to put it out there in the world, and know that people are going to pick it up and read it? And 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 do you think that can help make change? Well, I just tried to do my 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 bit, and um, I want to uh, do the best I can with what I, whatever I, I do, and I think I've tried to do that you know, most times throughout my life. Um, you just do the best you can in, in in the moment that you're given to do it, and um, uh, and you don't waste it. You don't you don't waste you know what whatever you you um, set out to do. You try to do the, the the absolute best, and you work hard at it. And that's um, you know that's the lesson I got from 
uh, a lot of people in our world, particularly elders who took me under their wing as, 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 a, as a young woman and, um, and taught me and uh, they teach you patience and they also teach you to do the best you can and, um, and that's it, you know, that's what you, you can do and, uh, and it's good if you try to do it. Alexis Wright, it's been a huge pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for having me on your program. And Praiseworthy by Alexis Wright is published by Giramondo. I have something different for you. I am so looking forward to sharing this with you. Uh, The producer of the book show, Sarah Lestrange, has been looking back into Australia's bizarre history of book scandals. There have been so many of these. And over the next several weeks, she's going to guide you and me through some of the great fakes, frauds and phonies of the Australian literary scene. She's starting with the most recent drama to hit the headlines, The Story Behind the Dogs by John Hughes. It's just after Christmas 2021, and Anna Verney, who's a lawyer and writer, picked up one of her Christmas presents to read. It was a novel, The Dogs by John Hughes. I was really struck by what was a really powerful central scene in it. The Dogs is the seventh book by the former teacher and writer John Hughes, and it explores the impact of intergenerational trauma on the central character, Michael Shamanov. I was heavily pregnant when I was reading the novel, and uh, in this central scene, a character whose name is also Anna, Uh, is an Italian partisan fighter fighting against the Nazi German army in World War II. And in the scene, she is forced to drown her baby daughter in a swamp to avoid her unit being detected by German forces and their dogs who are hunting them. Uh, I found it incredibly shocking and it really stuck with me. But then Anna had a moment of deja vu. I rushed to my bookshelf and pulled out the John Hughes novel and sat down and compared the two passages side by side. I'm Sarah Lestrange and this is Fakes and Frauds, the first in a series about the book scandals that rocked Australia. And you might be surprised there have been a few and some have shaken the literary community to its core. The series looks at the authors who have hoodwinked the Australian publishing industry, the writers who have plagiarised or lied about their identity or faked the stories behind their books. I've investigated the scandals with the people who uncovered these fakes and frauds. In this first episode, the Australian novelist John Hughes is about to be exposed for his writing practice by writer and lawyer Anna Verney, who's been reading Hughes's novel The Dogs, side by side with another book. Uh, Purely by chance, uh, about a month later, I picked up a copy of the Nobel laureate Svetlana Alexeyevich's The Unwomanly Face of War. 
Svetlana Alexeyevich is a Belarusian Nobel laureate for literature, and her book, The Unwomanly Face of War, is uncompromising and fierce. It catalogues the oral testimonies of Soviet women who fought in World War II. And it was originally published in the 1980s, but was first translated into English in 2017. As I was reading the foreword, I had a really eerie sense of deja vu that I had read a scene <laughs> that was described in the Alexeyevich in The Dogs. It was the same scene of a woman drowning her baby to avoid exposing herself and others to a Nazi unit and its dogs. My initial reaction was disbelief. I rushed to my bookshelf and pulled out the John Hughes novel and sat down and compared the two passages side by side. And the debt, uh, Hughes' debt to Alexeyevich's work uh, when I did that was unmistakable. And unacknowledged. These lines are extracted from the bigger scenes in the Alexeyevich and the dogs. So this is taken from the Alexeyevich. Somebody betrayed us. The Germans found out where the camp of our partisan unit was. This is from Hughes. Someone betrayed us. The Germans found the camp. Alexeyevich. We were saved by the swamps where the punitive forces didn't go. For days, for weeks, we stood up to our necks in water. Hughes. We were saved by the swamps. For days, we stood up to our necks, mud and water. Alexeyevich. The baby was hungry. It had to be nursed but the mother herself was hungry and had no milk. Hughes, the baby was hungry, but she was hungry too and had little milk. Alexeyevich, the baby cried. Punitive forces were close. With dogs, if the dogs heard it, we'd all be killed. The whole group, 30 of us, you understand? Hughes, we could hear the dogs. If the dogs heard the baby, there were 30 of us, you understand? Alexeyevich, she lowered the swaddled baby into the water and holds it there for a long time. The baby doesn't cry anymore. Hughes. She plunged the baby's small body under the water. Suddenly there was no struggle. The body was limp and she knew it was dead. I thought, oh my gosh, I wonder, does, does this publisher know? There are no acknowledgements and attributions in the dogs um, such that its debt to Alexeyevich was made clear. She eventually found almost 60 cases of similarities in the dogs. Anna had to do something. So I pulled together photographs of all of the passages between the two books. Um, I sent them out in an email and I sent them across to Hughes' publisher, um, Upswell Publishing. I was surprised and I discussed it with John and uh, I was surprised that that a number of the sentences that she was highlighting were close to identical in the two books. Terry ann White, um, who's the director of Upswell Publishing, wrote back very, very quickly. Uh, in her email to me, she acknowledged that a reader would be concerned about the striking similarities between the two, two books uh, in the scenes I'd sent through. Her initial reaction was that she was certain that he had not copied from Alexeyevich's work as an act of plagiarism. I made a very um, detailed response to Anna Verney about how this might have happened, that John had read the Alexeyevich book when it, first, when it was first translated into English 
and had made notes about it in his journal uh, where he was also he had also used a number of those phrases that are all quite short phrases and they're all uh, dialogue uh, that uh, he'd used he'd also used those phrases um, as prompts and and starting points in some of the writing workshops that he uh, presented in the schools that he worked in and in the community. Uh, she also said that what struck her in reading the passages um, was the uni universality of experience of brutality and suffering in war. The Dogs was getting the attention of Literary Prize judges and it was shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for Fiction and was soon to be longlisted for the Miles Franklin Literary Award, the most prestigious book award in Australia. But the parallels between the dogs and the unwomanly face of war were too great for Anna Verney to ignore. So she went public with her discoveries in The Guardian on the 9th of June 2022. John Hughes was approached for interview via his literary agent, but wasn't available for comment for this series. But in a statement to The Guardian, in response to Anna Verney's findings, he wrote, I'm not trying to justify myself here. I'm rather trying to account for how I could have used so directly parts of another writer's work without realising I was doing so. I did not at any stage in the writing intend to pass off Alexievich's work as my own and was truly surprised when I saw the material included in an article. There is nothing more disturbing than discovering your creative process is not what you had assumed. I would like to apologise to Miss Alexievich and her translators for using their words without acknowledgement. Svetlana Alexievich responded to Anna Verney's findings too. In her statement to The Guardian, she wrote, I have never heard of the dogs nor been contacted by Hughes. The verbatim takes from my book are outrageous, and of course I did not agree to this. Anna Verney's literary detective work had an immediate impact. The Dogs was removed from contention from the Miles Franklin Literary Award. However, not everyone who read Anna's article was convinced that this was a case of clear-cut plagiarism. I first saw the story in The Guardian as I was picking up my kid from school, I think it dropped, you know, uh, on, a, on an afternoon, a weekday afternoon. That's Shannon Burns. He's an author and a book critic from Adelaide. You know, my initial motivation was to kind of rescue the dogs <laughs> or to find something to defend in it. But when the book was removed from the Miles Franklin Literary Award, Shannon Burns' interest was piqued. And I went out and I bought a copy. I got about 90 pages in. I told myself that I wouldn't look for the instances of plagiarism. And, and then I came across a passage which just seemed to be very overtly different in tone and substance from the material that I'd been reading. And I marked it up and I thought, well, this is probably pretty obviously a bit from Alexeyevich and I put a little note on the margin that said maybe check this later and I kept reading <laughs> um, and I didn't check it until maybe the next day or the day after so I, you know I was definitely not 
out to eagerly hunt down <laughs> instances of plagiarism. Um, when I did check it, and I checked it by the very simple method of typing a phrase or a sentence into Google Books, and the first sentence, this is on page 94, um, the first sentence is, one clear night, polar cold descended from the sky. And I just typed that sentence in and it hit, um, uh, it hit a result. That sentence was from prize-winning French writer André McKean's Dreams of My Russian Summers. I just thought, this is a wider thing than what was described in The Guardian. Which, you'll remember, had at this point only located copied texts from The Unwomanly Face of War by Svetlana Alexeyevich. I just, I, I just had a feeling that there was more there. And I checked it maybe uh, later. I think I just had another look. And I found that a huge portion had been taken from a book called Hope Abandoned by Nadeshta Mandelstam. At this point, we know that John Hughes had copied from at least three books without acknowledgement. But for Shannon, the thrill of the hunt just wasn't enough for him, and he didn't take the investigation further. Given that this is the first and only paragraph I've checked, and it was the first and only paragraph, I reckon it'll take someone quite a while to compile all of the borrowings. Because it turns out that looking for plagiarism in novels is surprisingly low-tech and relies more on the literary knowledge and time of the investigator. Shannon did post his discoveries on Twitter, but you can't find them anymore because he locked his account and it's now private. But the Australian literary scholar Emmett Stinson took up the mantle to uncover more instances of plagiarism, which Anna Verney then reported on in another article for The Guardian. They found that there were very close to verbatim passages in the dogs from uh, Anna Karenina, F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, and Eric Maria remarks All Quiet on the Western Front, among other works. Uh, so we reported on that, on their findings in The Guardian. That list again, The Great Gatsby, Anna Karenina, All Quiet on the Western Front. Now, these are all really well-known books. So how is it that only one person, Anna Verney, picked up similarities in the dogs with another book that she was reading at the time? How did so many well-read people miss the connections? Because we're talking here respected Australian literary critics and the Miles Franklin judges and John Hughes' own publisher, Terry ann White, who told me that she'd also read The Unwomanly Face of War. I had also read, I expect, all of the other books that he uh, borrowed from and it's, it, I did not recognise the plagiarism um, and I think... That's because I enter into reading uh, in a very opened up space, uh, like a sponge, and I trust I trust the author until I can't. You know, we're doing something really interesting as readers when we read fiction. We are trusting a lie. 
So as a critic, you know, there might have been a chance that I would notice a sentence that was taken from some other writer, but my instinct as a critic would be just to think about intertextual connection. You know, so I wouldn't be searching out plagiarism. So there, there is a reliance on the trust of readers. Trust is central to understanding this story because it's central to the contract between the reader and writer. And these findings of major 19th and 20th century works in The Dogs made John Hughes' initial explanation of mixing up teaching notes look less likely. John Hughes responded again this time with his own 1,700-word essay for The Guardian on his writing process, called I Am Not a Plagiarist and Here's Why. I've always used the work of others in my own. It's a rare writer who doesn't. It's a question of degree. It's a great simplification to call this plagiarism. My whole writing life has been a dialogue with the books I love, a kind of writing collage. I've always spoken through the voices of others. For better or worse, I've lived my life in books, and influence has been one of the key themes throughout my work. I've always believed that we can only write about this place by writing over the writing and culture and history of others, a kind of literary palimpsest. Some say there is no such thing as an original idea in art or even in writing. But John Hughes' I Am Not a Plagiarist essay didn't sit well with many critics and readers because it was so different from his first explanation in which he said it was an accident. And it didn't sit well with his publisher, Terry Ann White, who initially stood by him. I did feel betrayed. Terry Ann White says had she known this was Hugh's process, she would have argued for acknowledgements to be included in the book. And that was why, you know, I made a pretty immediate public response after uh, absolutely backing the, the mysteriousness of, of the imagination and imaginative writing uh, previously. And so what's the status of the book now? Uh, it's dead. It means that it's been put out of print, that uh, it no longer has a life. Terry ann White speaking to me in December 2022. She effectively took the novel The Dogs off the market as a result of John Hughes' actions, which means you could think of Terry Ann White as one of the victims of John Hughes's plagiarism. But he's not a monster. By all accounts, he's a very nice person. John's an incredibly kind man. This is Joseph Earp. He met Hughes at Sydney Grammar School when Joseph was 13 and Joseph attended John Hughes' lunchtime writing classes, which Joseph tells me were a real place of refuge for him. I mean, John was an extraordinary teacher. He was the first person who had ever made me think about writing as a craft and a true craft and one that was kind of important and beautiful and helped constitute and build the self, um, and that was profound for me. Clearly, Joseph Earp respects John Hughes and is grateful for the things that Hughes taught him. But what the research into the extent of John Hughes' plagiarism revealed was that not only did Hughes copy from Nobel laureates, but also from Spark Notes, the Bringing Them Home report, and even his own work. Hughes also copied the work of his student, Joseph Earp, in his 2020 Miles Franklin shortlisted book, 
called No One. So that piece of writing uh, was a review that I wrote for um, a small Sydney street press called The Brag. Um, I was writing a lot of music reviews for them and I had to review a piece of work by a continuous pianist whose name is Lubomir Melnik. He makes this kind of very complicated and dense music. And uh, I wrote this review that was really kind of the strangest review that I'd ever written because it wasn't really engaging with the music much at all. The review only talks about it kind of in the last line. And I was proud of it, so I shared it on my socials. And um, I assume that's where John read it. Let's hear the two pieces side by side. First, here are Joseph Earp's words in that piece of writing. A few years ago, I was living in Coventry, England. Though I had a room in a share house, I barely used it. I preferred to live and sleep in the freezing cold shed out the back. And here is John Hughes' version in his book, No One. When I came of age, as they used to say, and was no longer a ward of the state, I moved from Cessnock to Sydney and rented a room in a boarding house on the outskirts of Windsor. I preferred to sleep, however, in the shed at the bottom of the garden. Joseph's words? I'd sit out there chain-smoking, trying and failing to decide what I was going to do with my life. Then, one day, a fox appeared in the garden. He spent a few days testing me out, evaluating me. Eventually, following whatever strange whim it is that guides the business of foxes, he came into the shed. And now, John Hughes. It was winter when I moved and very cold, but I'd sit on a camp chair on the concrete slab that supported the shed and chain smoke and drink from a goon of tawny port, trying and failing to come up with something I should do. Then, one day, a fox appeared in the garden. I'd seen foxes before in my last foster home in Cessnock, but never this close. She spent a few days evaluating me. Eventually, following whatever instinct it is that guides the business of foxes, she came into the shed. So, the versions aren't exactly the same, but the debt to Joseph's article is really obvious. The shed, the fox, the garden, it's all there. How did you respond? You know, it was, it was complicated. Uh, the trickiest emotion and what I think what I think has been hardest for me to express is some kind of version of pride. Um, I felt that this was a case of me having given back to and influenced John as he had influenced me in other less direct ways. And so there was this sense of like, yeah, but kind of becoming part a small part, definitely a small part, but becoming a part of the canon of writing uh, that had affected him in some way. And so that sat kind of independently to a strong feeling that I had and still have um, that none of this undoes for me in any way what John did for me. I don't feel any less indebted to John uh, than I have felt since I first met him. It does, however, feel like that's been complicated and tangled up in these other feelings was a sense of... Betrayal? Not even betrayal, a sense of 
you know, making it as a writer is extremely hard. And so you are constantly fighting, particularly in the economic climate that we live in now, you are constantly fighting an uphill struggle to get anything published anywhere. And more than that, you're then fighting an uphill struggle to get the things that you've published to connect with readers. So this felt like the starkest incident of a feeling that I had felt for a while, which is just this sense of um, to have had something that was formed out of difficulty uh, be not properly attributed to me, kind of solidified that feeling of like, you're pushing something uphill and uh, rewards are sometimes hard to come by. Yeah, but it was your teacher who did that. Yeah, I mean, I think, strangely, I don't know how much different I would have felt if it was someone who I didn't know. So Joseph Earp was hurt, albeit in a complicated way. Hughes broke the trust of his publisher, Terry Ann White, and angered Svetlana Alexeyevich for using her words without acknowledgement. There was also an impact on the Miles Franklin Literary Award, because another writer missed out on that coveted spot in 2022. So let's answer this question once and for all. Was it plagiarism? I find this a really difficult and complex situation. You could say that plagiarism is Lachlan Brown's thing. He's an academic integrity officer at Charles Sturt University in New South Wales. So for the last few years, I've been uh, looking at student work, uh, maybe around 1,200 instances of potential student plagiarism or student academic misconduct. Lachlan Brown is also a poet and critic, and when he went through John Hughes' work, he uncovered many more cases of copying in the dogs, and also in Hughes' earlier works. Similarities don't necessarily mean plagiarism. Uh, I've been trained to find similarities uh, between student work, for example, and sources. Uh, and usually in, in the academy, you would want references, you would want some acknowledgement that that work was from somewhere else. I think things are slightly different in the world of creative writing. Um, we, this isn't the academy. Uh, there are different standards. Um, people are able to kind of use pastiche in various ways. And so there's different kinds of similarity that you might not call plagiarism in other circumstances. But often what we do is we match people's words or explanations of what they've done with the evidence of what they've done. And here I think we see in Hughes, and this is what is really concerning, various accounts from John Hughes of what was going on. Um, the cynic in me thinks that, look, here is a guy that has put together aspects of Nobel Prize winning writers and then just kind of uh, attached them to various other stories of from vulnerable Australians um, as a kind of recipe for literary glory. Now, that's a kind of cynical view, that this is a stitching together of works um, to try and create the great Australian slash European novel, a Frankenstein's monster. Um, but there is something kind of antipodean about that, isn't there? I mean, when the platypus appeared uh, for the first time in Europe, they thought it was a hoax. They were looking for the stitch marks where someone had stitched the bill onto another animal. 
Well, here we've found the stitch marks, haven't we? We found the stitching where an Australian has stitched together works from Europe with other works from Australian sources. All of these further infringements were revealed in an in-depth essay called Being John Hughes, written by Anna Verney and co-writer Richard Cook, published in 2023 in the Australian long-form journalism magazine, The Monthly. So why does it matter that a novelist like John Hughes is revealed to be a repeat plagiarist? Yes, he is an award-winning author, but he's not widely read beyond a group of acolytes. There are lots of reasons, I think. The first one is our love of some of those other books and the kind of sense of being scandalised by the way that a person might just extract something that is precious to us and use it to their own ends. Shannon Burns. Within the literary community, there's a sense of um, not all writers get to be on long lists and short lists. And so he's taken up a place that someone else might have enjoyed. You know, that's part of it as well. Um, We care because this is a small literary community with limited resources that is always fighting for attention, fighting for prestige, uh, fighting for relevance. And this is an embarrassment. I think we care partly because of that as well. Well, I understand that the public reporting on these issues has been damaging to John's career. That damage is the result of something that he has done. Again, it's not me that has taken from the works of other writers unacknowledged and built books on that. It's not me that has taken from testimonies from the Bringing Them Home report and used them in a novel. Part of the practice of putting our work out there as writers is its critical reception. And to say that John Hughes's practice of plagiarism is beyond critique is, in my mind, um, misguided. Anna Verney, who you will remember was the first person to raise the flag about possible plagiarism in John Hughes' work. But what about John Hughes' publisher, Terry Ann White? She felt her trust had been broken by Hughes. Would she work with him again? When I spoke to her in 2022, she said it wasn't off the cards. I would, yes, um, because I... Wow, that's surprising. <laughs> well, I admire, I admire the writer. So for that reason, I'd want to kind of honour the best bits of the writer John Hughes. Even though that this would follow him with any subsequent books and therefore follow you. Yep. Well, I think I I want to be a courageous publisher. Like many places, Australia has a long and chequered history of literary scandals, going back to the early days of publishing. But the John Hughes scandal is, according to Anna Verney, the most notable given the extent of plagiarism involved. As far as we've been able to find, um, this copying has no parallel in published literature. 
while it took dedication and determination to uncover the depths of John Hughes' plagiarism, the scale and extent of this project may pale in comparison with what is to come as we enter the era of chatbot and AI-generated content, where AI tools will generate writing, including novels, all of which will make plagiarism harder to detect. How will we know if we're reading an original book by an author, a work of plagiarism, or the creation of an AI bot? The next big literary scandal will surely be the AI novel that none of us picked. Lachlan Brown agrees. Poets like Kami and Starnino would argue that a generative AI is never going to give us great insights into the human condition because it cannot experience. Um, but there is a kind of counter-argument, and I think Hughes might show that, that, that indeed a stitching together or a training on a larger corpus of texts can produce interesting work, work that is moving, work that affects us. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really interested in the kind of futures that we might see in, the, in literary studies and in literature production. The future is, will be a very strange place. The exposure of plagiarism by John Hughes in this book scandal was driven by committed readers and literary scholars. And in the next episode of Fakes and Frauds, journalists become the heroes as we go back to 2003 and the extraordinary case of Norma Corey and her best-selling book, Forbidden Love. This series is produced and presented by me, Sarah Lestrange. The sound engineer today was Kerry Dell and the executive producer is Rhiannon Brown. Thanks for listening. What a fascinating story. I can't wait for you to hear all the episodes in this Fakes and Fraud series. Uh, come back next time for that. Also for the one and only Curtis Sittenfeld. If you've missed any of today's show, remember you can follow The Book Show on the ABC Listen app. I'm Claire Nichols. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.